I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Nadia Marzuki. She's a research fellow at the CNRS, the French National Center for Scientific Research, and currently a Carnegie Fellow at the Ash Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Nadia, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Nadia is the author of a new book uh, that was just published by Columbia University Press. It's called Islam, an American Religion, and it's a translation of a French book by the same name uh, from several years ago. Uh, Nadia, could you tell us a little bit about the book? What's the main argument, the main contribution that you were trying to make to our understanding of the topic? Yes, so the book is a study of the main controversies around Islam since 2008 to 2016, so basically during the Obama era. I'm looking at the controversies around two issues, mosque construction and the anti-Sharia law, anti-foreign law legislation movement. And through this uh, study of these controversies, what I want to understand is uh, what, what these debates mean beyond a mere opposition between Islamophobes and Muslim minorities. My argument is that you have to go beyond this notion that these controversies, these anti-mosque movements, these anti-Sharia movements express merely Islamophobia. They do express a lot of Islamophobia, but my argument is that beyond that, they betray and they express a deeper discomfort and unease with an understanding of law, an understanding of rights, and an understanding of liberal democracy. And this is really what's at stake uh, in the conversation and in the many disputes around mosques, Sharia, and also uh, in a more minor way, the headscarf and uh, religious uh, ways of uh, eating and various forms of religious rituals related to the Islamic communities. Now, one of the really fascinating themes that runs through the book is your comparison, explicitly and implicitly, between the European debates and especially the French debates about Islam with what you observed in the United States. And this was a really interesting uh, way of approaching the topic. Um, and tell us a little bit about how you ended up uh, observing the American, uh, kind of the American process um, in the context of this very different uh, set of political ideas and institutions. So when I started the project, I was, as many, many observers of uh, France, Europe, and the U.S., convinced that these these were very different models of understanding and um, handling of religious uh, pluralism. So I, I then uh, looked at my my, my fieldwork in, in, from this perspective, and I, I got increasingly surprised and astonished when I was doing fieldwork and looking at all these debates in the U.S., uh, at how similar they were with the debates going on in Europe about also Sharia, women's rights, Muslim women's rights, uh, the headscarf, the burqa, the, the mosque instructions. And it was really surprising to see how similar all the themes, the rhetorical tropes animating anti-Muslim movements were similar in Europe and the US. And 
this was all the more surprising that the sociologies of Islam in Europe and in the U.S. are very different. You don't have the same Muslim communities. They don't come from the same ethnic background, from the same nations. They don't have the same socioeconomic uh, level. They don't have the same level of education. And in general, they're much more educated, have a better socioeconomic uh, level in the U.S. And um, the, the, the before, uh, before 2000 one and even more so before 2008 islam was never such a big problem in the domestic politics in the us so i got really intrigued as to why it is that even though the sociologies of islam are so different the empirics are so different across the atlantic you have you you we witness since the past decade or so uh, 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 increasing standardization of the, the discourse uh, the policy and public discourse about islam we define with the same tropes about the islamization of the suburbs the uh, lack of freedom of muslim women the risk for mosques to be to become breeding grounds for terrorism the myth of stealth jihad. I mean, all these phrases have been clearly and carefully manufactured by specific groups, by a minority of think tank, organization, anti-Muslim lobbies who get funding from specific charities and, and foundations. This has been very well documented by organizations like uh, 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 the Center for American Progress and various reports. It has been also very well studied by Christopher Bale in his book Terrified, and he shows how all these groups have contributed to the emergence uh, of the and normalization of this anti-Muslim discourse. Now, what's important is that these groups work in close correlation with similar groups in Europe. So these the, the standardization of the anti-Muslim discourse is not just has not emerged spontaneously. It's not it's important to insist on the fact that it's not something natural or spontaneous. It's something that has been crafted by these organizations that have close ties across the Atlantic. And what's very interesting there is when you describe the standardization of the discourse on Islam, you emphasize how it becomes uh, you use the words formulaic and narrow. And in many ways, it seems detached from the lived realities of the communities that are getting so agitated. Absolutely. And I think this is why um, it's, it's important for academics and activists and uh, community organizers to always br bring back individual stories, like a question that's often asked to us as academics is like, well, this is very nice. Thanks. You. Thank you for, for your book. But now what? Now what do we do? And I think one thing that you could get out of this book is, well, what you could do is try to to counter the, the the power of these stereotypes with the telling of multiple various stories in order to to tell and to give value to the empirics because what's really completely uh, absurd and and problematic in the current situation both in in Europe and in the US is that we are defining policies based on stereotypical discourse and without any account for the empirics and the lived reality, lived experience of Muslim communities in um, 
in both uh, places. And uh, as formulaic or stereotypical as these these discourse are, they they have a, a great impact. They do have a, a really problematic and powerful impact in the sense that they do set the standard of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to say in the public sphere. So because these extreme right or anti-Muslim groups are so organized, so uh, insistent, have been so in the past decade, they have succeeded in constantly and regularly shifting the, the, the standard of what's acceptable uh, speech about Islam in the, in the public sphere. And as a result, for Muslim organizations or for liberals or for Democrats or for people who are, have no political affiliation but refuse this anti-Muslim discourse, it's very hard to just come and bring another conversation or create another conversation because they constantly have to justify their action or their views in relation to these stereotypes. So they end up being caught in this process and trapped and they don't have another choice but to say no, Islam is not a religion of violence or no, Muslims are not all terrorists. So you end up with a conversation that is extremely poor and uninteresting but it's like a collective sort of trapping where people are just caught up in this in these binary and stereotypical conversations. There, there's one exception to that uh, that pattern, and that's the, uh, the the protest which broke out over the travel ban and uh, the airport protests. And it seemed that that was a moment in uh, the United States that was quite unique in terms of the way. Uh, Muslims were suddenly included within this broader coalition of values that Americans needed to defend. It seemed like that flipped the script in some very, very unusual ways. Yes, absolutely. That is a very, very good, uh, very good example, very good case of uh, where, ironically, after the, the election of uh, President Trump and the unleashing of all this Islamophobic rhetoric, you ended up having a, a, an, an enormous and uh, an enthusiasm for these inter-ecumenical uh, movements and inter-religious uh, movements of solidarity, bringing together Jews and Muslims and Christians and uh, atheists and secular and the, the um, demonstrations in airports have been, I think, a very uh, hopeful and important uh, moment that has contributed to bring back the individual stories to uh, to challenge these stereotypes, and uh, I think it's interesting that these these ha these events have happened uh, so so quickly after the executive bans, and they they gave reasons to be hopeful. And I think uh, these are very important uh, instances of how resistance uh, to anti bigotry and anti Muslim um, rhetoric could be could be envisaged. Now, let's go back to the more theoretical level, because you have a very interesting argument about how liberalism as a set of discourses and as a, a distinctly American approach to, uh, to, to political community acts as both an enabler and an obstacle to this kind of anti-Islam discourse, that it forces the discussion into particular directions, which might sometimes actually be quite negative and other times be positive. Um, can you tell, us, tell me a little bit more about how you think about the role of liberalism as a set of ideas and identities in all of this. So, um, 
throughout my book, I, I want to contrast the, the violence of anti-Muslim movements and rhetorics and emotions with the very positive role I believe that law and courts has played in, in this country towards, uh, for, to, de to defend the, the, the rights of Muslim minorities. And I think this is an important difference with the situation in Europe. Uh, so in all most of the controversies around mosques and also the debate around anti-Sharia uh, legislation, the courts have played a role that was always uh, about defending the rights, the constitutional rights to religious freedom of Muslim minorities. And uh, what was interesting and uh, scary at the, at, at the same time and problematic is that the argument of the anti-Muslim groups was really about uh, denying or rejecting a full rejection of the rights of Muslim minorities, but it was more sophisticated. It was a, a rejection of the of the very relevance of the reference to rights. And I think the, the controversy about the Ground Zero Mosque or the so-called Ground Zero Mosque is a good example of what I'm trying to show. So uh, when Muslim Muslims in New York were trying to build this Islamic uh, community center in a few blocks uh, near Ground Zero, the opponents to, to this project were not saying you should not build a mosque because you do not have a right to build a mosque. What they were saying is that we know you have a right to build a mosque, but this is inappropriate at this very at this very moment and at this at this specific place. So their slogan was, "It's not about rights; it's about what is right." And I think as soon as you bring this notion of emotion, appropriateness, um, it, it it sort of uh, opens up a whole uh, messy, problematic, dangerous uh, place of conversation where you just reject the relevance of the repertoire of liberal rights. And so interestingly, Muslim minorities and their allies within the Democrat camp and the liberals uh, were always bringing back the Constitution, the First Amendment, and, uh, uh, and the logic of liberal rights, equality, religious freedom, etc. And by contrast, the, 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 the rhetorics of the anti-Muslim anti groups is, is, is very, is very uh, cunning because it's not about uh, not, uh, not respecting Muslims' rights, but about asking them to not claim the right to practice these these rights. So it's like the, 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 the logic of emotionality of exception and based on this idea that Muslims are not deserving the protection of the First Amendment. So for them, Muslims are like free riders, a bit like they reject the Obamacare, considering that the poor are free riders that would benefit from the system without deserving uh, it. They also consider that Muslims are like sort of free riders of the First Amendment and that they have not showed yet, they have not proven yet that they are deserving citizens and that they, uh, they, they have a right to claim the, the same protections that uh, other citizens can claim. So uh, I think this conversation was, and, and, and this debate 
was was very interesting to analyze because again it, it goes to show that what's at stake is much more than a conversation or a dispute between Islamophobes and Muslims, but what's at stake ultimately is a, an opposition in the understanding of liberal rights and the extent to which they should protect everyone or just a, a specific part of the population. So that's like the first uh, the first part of the answer and the, the, the second part is that I also question uh, the even though I, I, I as I said I admire the role of courts and the reference to liberal law in the protection of Muslim citizens I also question a tendency to approach and address this controversy from a st strictly legal perspective so Muslims always go to courts they always refer to the US Constitution and this is this is uh, this has pro proven very efficient but it also sort of forecloses uh, other types of conversations and it also uh, creates uh, a system in which uh, the, the only sort of valid conversation regarding Islam is has to be mediated by legal experts. Um, so at the end of the book, I'm suggesting that even though this is very useful and should not be dismissed, it's also important to value other spaces in which uh, the various forms of Muslims' lives in the in the U.S. could be could be valued, could be defended, and in a way repoliticized in a positive way, not just seen like as a legal uh, quandary. But one of the issues where you see this posed less as a legal First Amendment issue, but as a genuine clash of values, is when the, the kind of the anti-Islamic camp will focus on women's rights and make the claim that Islam is somehow uh, uh, repressive of women, and therefore liberals should be on their side of the issue. And uh, and you address that topic in the book at, at some length, right? So. The case of uh, women's rights and uh, I would argue also gay rights in in the this conversation about um, Islam is interesting because I think it's uh, it's an interesting example where you could see clearly how secularism becomes instrumentalized to serve a sort of Christian nativist agenda. So. These groups and members of these groups who all of a sudden care about gender rights and LGBT rights when it's about Muslim minorities, it's it's very often the case that when it comes to their own communities, they're not necessarily the most convincing defenders of these types of rights. Um, so they, they have a sort of uh, secularism à la carte. So when they when 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 it's when it suits their sort of anti-Islamic agenda, they will always focus on uh, uh, this stereotype and this generalization that Islam, as such, is against the rights of LGBTQ communities and about against the rights of women. Um, and they expect, therefore, liberals and and uh, um, Democrats to side with them. Uh, and I think here, this is a very also interesting difference between the U.S. and Europe, because with a few exceptions, for example, groups like uh, um, American atheists and some specific minor groups on the liberal left, you overall, I, it seems to me that liberals have not bought into this, this sort of uh, simplification of Islam as a religion that entirely opposes uh, human, uh, women's rights and LGBT rights. 
in Europe, uh, on the contrary, it's there's been a, a, a very striking convergence of the discourse of the right and of the left, precisely because of these arguments of gender rights. Um, so in the U.S., I think the conversation remains much more polarized. There's there's a clear difference between the discourse of the liberals and the conservatives. Not all conservatives support this discourse, but you would find it much, much more powerfully within the conservative nebula and very rarely within uh, the liberal uh, groups. Um, so whereas in, in Europe, this argument of like feminism and gender rights is, is one of the most powerful arguments to justify anti-Islamic policy and rhetoric. Let me ask one last question. The um, you, the French version of the book was written and came out in 2013, and the English version just came out in 2017, and you managed to incorporate uh, President Trump's victory um, in, in the book, and you have an interesting argument about how kind of what works for a marginalized uh, emergent opposition group works very differently when the allies are actually holding the White House. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, observing this now, um, did it make you rethink any of your arguments now that you're seeing these anti-Islamic movements and rhetorics playing out in this new political environment? Does it make you rethink any of the arguments from the Obama years? Right. So dur during the, the Obama years, uh, the people who are now um, the not in charge, but close to those who are in charge, were very marginal. So they were like a marginal, hyperactive group, ser series of groups that were pushing for this anti-Islamic agenda. Uh, now you have people like Brigitte Gabriel, who, who's the head of Act for America, who's visiting the White House and apparently advising, as well as Frank Gaffney, one of the most prominent uh, defender of the anti-Sharia um, legislation movement. So these people are now closer to the centers of power and decision making. So that that in a way is, is, is a source of concern. On the other hand, you also see that people like Bannon and Flynn are, are maybe not gonna remain so powerful for, for a long time. So uh, it seems like things are very uh, messy right now and they could, they could change. Uh, it's, 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 there is the continuation of this process of mainstreamization of the fringe that Chris Bale describes and that I also describe in my book. Uh, but it could be the case also that in, in a paradoxical way, the election of Trump will can contribute to the last stage of the mainstreamization of these groups, which, which is the sort of neutralization and lack of the, the decredibilization of, of their discourse, either because there will be a sort of fatigue towards this anti-Islamic rhetoric or because the, the inconsistency of their views will be exposed. And most likely, I think, as an effect of the very uh, admirable resistance that is that is being organized within the civil society. So I have been really impressed by all the organizations of movements around uh, the the against the anti-Muslim ban, and I think uh, all uh, there all these these organizations are continuing to do work, and they 
contribute to create interesting and important bridges also among religious communities. For example, I think it's it's interesting. It, it will be interesting to study the ways in which Jewish and Muslim communities are building stronger alliances now and are sort of making a pact of not talking about foreign policy. So they're sort of distancing themselves from their common disagreement about Israel-Palestine and they want to focus on like the domestic issues and create like a common alliances. And I think all these these civil, civic ecumenical groups and alliances will have an important role to play in order to shift the conversation. So in the on the medium to long term, I think I'm quite hopeful in the, about the possibility of a, of a change in this in this uh, rhetorics and and uh, the the power of uh, these anti-Islamic groups. But uh, for the moment, it's also a fact that uh, anti-Islamic uh, hate incidents and rhetoric has increased, and so that remains for now a, a major source of concern. All right. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with Nadia Marzuki of the uh, French National Research Center and uh, Harvard University's Ash Center. Uh, Nadia, thank you for joining us to talk about your book. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mark.